uh, 145, it actually begins with a Hebrew letter that's uh, pronounced Kaf. And we, we read, beginning, uh, David starts out and he, he says, I cried with my whole heart, hear me, O Lord, I will keep thy statutes. I cried unto thee, save me, and I shall keep thy testimonies. I prevented the dawning of the morning and cried, I hope in my word. Mine eyes prevent the night watches that I might meditate in thy word. Hear my voice according unto thy loving kindness, O Lord. Quicken me according to thy judgment. They draw nigh that follow after mischief. They are far from thy law. Thou art near, O Lord, and all thy commandments are truth. Concerning thy testimonies, I have known of old that thou hast founded them forever. Very important. Here David makes the comparison between the perfect righteousness of God and how he compares himself to Jehovah and he's in, as the king of the northern and southern kingdom. He is nothing. David is not compared to the great creator and judge. He is not referring to himself as Jehovah Elohim at all, but he declares that there is one far above him. He believes that the earth has vows, covenants that have never been forgotten by God and precepts because he has an awesome responsibility to keep the gifts that the Lord gives in his heart to teach them and that he needs to expound and compare them to the wicked things that he had done in his life. And what I love about in Scripture, you're getting warts and all. As Pastor Britton spoke eloquently two weeks ago, he said you're not just getting positive things in the Bible, you're getting a lot of negative things. And that's when you're talking to somebody, think about when you're talking to somebody about a very sensitive matter, something that might be one of your children, or, or it could be your spouse, or your boyfriend, or your girlfriend, and something wrong goes happen. It could be a physical thing, it could be a, it could be a personal thing. And you sit down and you talk to somebody, and all they do is they fluff it up and say nothing but funny little, funny little happy things. And you know they're lying through their teeth. You know that you want to hear what's really the problem so you can fix it. It's like going to fix an, uh, an automobile or a truck. Dave knows this all too well. There are going to be negative things going on and down that engine. And to make it positive, what's the positive reaction? Getting in the car, turning the engine on, and being able to get in it and drive it and get you where you need to go. But it's not positive when there's oil leaking all over the place and there's problems and you need to go in and fix it. And that's what the scripture is like. It's a manual on how to, to fix our lives. And it doesn't lie to us. It tells us everything about what we need to know in order to honor God and his testimonies. And David calls that he all, by all these names, and go over and over and over again. Here in verse 145, they're his statutes. And he says, I will keep thy statutes. He's not saying that I will keep thy statutes because I'm perfect. He's saying, Lord, give me the grace to keep thy statutes. And if you only read that verse and you don't read around it, it's going to look like he's saying, I'll keep them, because I'm perfect. I'm an easy, good guy. I'm good. I'm good in my heart. But we know if you read around and you read Scripture, which is what we're commanded to do, you know why he's saying this. You know that there is a foundational principle on why he says this. He says, I am wicked. I am nothing compared to God, and I will only keep his statutes predicated on the grace that he gives me. O oh Lord, keep me from falling. How many times does he say that over and over again here in verse 145? He says, Lord, help me. I, I hear me, O Lord. I will keep thy statutes. Please hear me. We see this letter, Kaf, is, is the Hebrew letter that opens up this part of the passage. And it meant it was an original picture of the back of a man's head. 
That's what it actually meant. And the, the idea being portrayed is that of following after or behind, or to follow in a circuit or a cycle. It's used for the following of the convocation, or in other words, by the holy feast. It means the following of the circuit of the feast year around. So basically it means following, and how David is speaking about following God. That's very interesting in how these Hebrew letters have very great meanings, and they're very important. You don't get this in other versions of the Bible. And we should be very careful with that. We see in 145 and 146, David cried with his whole heart. So far we have seen this king of Israel. He's the master poet, the musician. He's the psalmist, the warrior, and the leader. And he needs a leader over him, and that is God. God is our refuge and our strength. Can someone please look up Psalm 46, verses 1 through 3? And read that as soon as you have it. David's, David's refuge. He, he, he believed there were many that thought David was their refuge as their king. His children, his, his, his many, his many uh, uh, generals that he had. Joab was one of them. He had a pastor, Nathan. And they wanted protection. And they thought he was their refuge. But, but David had a refuge in and of himself. And who was that? Could someone read these pass this passage, please. Psalm 46, verses 1 through 3. Very familiar. Perfect. Thank you, Lisa. Look at this. Does anybody remember this? Does anybody? Re how do we remember this? Psalm 46. Why does it sound so familiar? It's a song. We've sung it many times here. God is our refuge and our strength in straits of present aid, and therefore, though the earth be moved, we will not be afraid. Though hills amidst those seas be cast, though troubled waters worry, yea, though the swelling billows shake the mountains on the shore. We've sung that. That's a wonderful opening for our lives and where we can depend on the Lord. Where else did we hear that? What great man wrote a song based on Psalm 46, one who is in peril, real peril? Should have been dead. He should have been dead. He was kidnapped in the woods and he was taken to a tower. And he wrote this with a good friend of his. And every time they were getting depressed and they were having problems, they wrote a rendition of Psalm 46 1 and they sang it over and over and over. And today we have the blessing of singing it. Okay. Luther. Well, it's a song, remember? A mighty fortress is our God. And it was based on Psalm 46. Those are the kind of songs that I love, the hymns, that are based from the heart on Scripture. Some of these hymns that we sing today and other people sing, they're very theologically unsound. They have way too many personal pronouns in them. But this was something that was written by two men, predicated on the Psalms, in perilous days, facing the sword over and over again, facing death. And they, they, they wrote this, and we're still singing that low 500 years later. 2017 actually marked the 500th anniversary of that period, the Reformation. Matthew. Yeah. 
Yeah, today there's a lot of like songs with a lot of like contemporary songs with a lot of lipstick on them. I remember one hearing years ago, when the spirit gives me the nod, I get excited about the things of God. You know, can you imagine that, singing something like that? It's just crazy. That's a real song. And, and there's, there's a lot of those we could talk about. But you look at this, then you see the connection with Martin Luther to King David. He writes a song predicated on Psalm, 140, I mean Psalm 46. That's his refuge, a mighty fortress is our God. And that is incredible that they would write this in such perilous times. They're singing when they're facing death. That happened many times down through the ages when the, these, the young men were being wheeled. They were being wheeled up to the, to, the, to the stakes and they were about to be burned alive. They would do one of two things. They would either sing, like remember Peter? Remember Peter and John when they were singing in the jail? Remember that? And Paul and Silas? Or one of the things that the reformers would do, they would quote Psalm 51. They memorized Psalm 51. I memorized it years ago and I'm telling you, do it. You're going to be so thankful that you do that. Do it. Sit down. I'll tell you how to do it. You know how I do it? It took me two years. I just, you know, with me, if somebody told me, put a gun to my head and sit down in, one, in four hours and said, memorize that, I'm going to blow your head off, I'd say, pull the trigger. I can't do it. Four hours, just go ahead. I, there's nothing I can do. But I said to myself, very, I remember R.C. Sproul gave this, he gave this wonderful, uh, this, this wonderful lesson on the repentance unto life from the Westminster Confession of Faith predicated on Psalm 51. And the first thing he said, he says, I commit everyone to memorize Psalm 51. Back around 2008, I started doing it. And it was 07, 08, I can't remember, kids were kind of little and all. And I would get up, I would pray, and I would try to quote each verse in my prayer. And by the time I did it over like a year or two, I knew it inside and out. And, and, I, and I'm telling you, I have gone back to that so many times. I've gone back to Psalm 51. We'd sing it. And I, and I remember the words. Even when we're, the words are so close in the Psalms, predicated on what we sing in the Psalter. It really, it, it, it really fills your heart with gladness to know that. And so David is saying here, I cried. The king of Israel crying? Where is the king of Israel crying? He's crying. He says, it made my heart so soft that it brought me to tears. I love it. God is our refuge. David, David's refuge, as he clarifies in Psalm 46, he would ultimately go to God for everything. If we go to God with just our heads and misuse the means of grace and just hear it and, and, we, and it doesn't filter into our lives, we're missing a great blessing. It's an encouragement. Our minds are the avenues to our hearts. Remember Paul said that about the renewing of our minds. Our minds are the avenues to our hearts and that distance between our minds and our hearts is so important. It needs to be a pipeline and it needs to filter things in and apply them. That means what we have to do is an action. That means if we hear it and the Lord puts it in our hearts, we use that somehow to glorify the Lord and we use it in some way that we can benefit others and, and, and be servants to them and lift them up. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. And David here cries because he's praying from his heart, with his whole heart. He's praying for God's mercy. He, he says he cried, he, he cares, he has a sensitive love, he has what the true mark of a Christian. You ever, want, you ever start feeling bad and thinking, how in the world am I ever going to go to heaven? I'm wicked. You know, that's a good mark that you would say something like that. 
because people that don't care or hate the Lord, that doesn't mean anything to them. I deserve it. I'm good. No matter what anybody says, I have given to the charities. I've put my, I've put my coat over puddles and the old ladies have walked over it and not gotten their feet wet. I went and saved a couple of dogs and uh, did all this stuff. And then they think that's it. That's what they think. And they think I'm good. That's a very healthy feeling, thought, and a sensitive reaction to the Lord to have a natural affection because of his mercy for Jesus Christ. You have a natural affection for Christ, you, you have a very incredible gift. And that gift is a manifestation of what the gospel is. I heard something fascinating two days ago. Never thought about this. We've been talking about the gospel. What is it? You ask most people what the gospel is, they don't even begin to know. They say, oh, it's those songs we sing on Sunday morning. We sing gospels. Or it's what Elvis sang, how great they are. He sang gospels, you know, and so many other things. That's what a gospel is. I heard that the gospel, by its design and engineering from heaven above, it is, the, the, the gospel is the, the measure of the presence of a Trinitarian God that the gospel revolves around the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in its shape. It's incredible. It's incredible how vast that is. And I started reading and I started thinking about that. And you think about that and you go through the God. Let's keep it practical. Look how many times you, ran, you read about Christ's experiences in his ministry and all throughout the synoptic gospels, the Holy Spirit and the, Holy, the, Father, the Father were present. He prayed to the Father. He had ministered the Spirit. He had said in the book of John, I leave the Spirit with you because it must needs be that I'm on the right hand of the Father and the Holy Spirit would take over and be the manifestation of Christ in our hearts on this earth. What an incredible doctrine and a brilliant high academic level of theology to be able to know why all three parts of the Trinity fit into the gospel. That's an incredible understanding. That's high level learning and I love it. I think it's great. He cried, he cared, he had an inward manifestation of the love for God's protection. Remember how David had soaked his bed with his tears. Remember, I am weary with my groaning, Psalm 6.6. All the night make I my bed to swim, I water my couch with my tears. And he says, my night is consumed with grief, it waxeth old because of what? All my enemies. Do you feel like you have enemies when you mention the name of Jesus Christ? Oh, I can tell you, it's there. You start talking about Jesus Christ, you can say God all you want. That's fine. Everybody knows, everybody thinks God could be anything. But you mention the name of Christ, you're going to have enemies. David had enemies. His own son wanted to kill him. David prays and he went from his, it went right from his head to the core of his heart. He says here, I cried, 145. I cried, 146. 147, I prevented the dawning. He says, I couldn't even get out of bed. I was crying so hard. He was, he, he was penitent for his sins. Seven penitential psalms, and they, and they believe there's actually more penitential psalms, but there's at least seven that David wrote about his sins, and he cared. It came from his soul, which was filled with the Holy Spirit. We know Psalm 51, 12, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. David is teaching us here about salvation and how it's manifested. And his heart is guarded and strengthened by prayer. He said, I cried with my whole heart. He said, and, and prayer brought him to the word of God. You know, I've seen that. 
I've seen that in my own life. I know, you, you know, you get through certain periods in your life, you just haven't been in Scripture. You go through days, you get busy. Normally, I like to start off the day, and I like to get right into it. Some days, you get these phone calls. All right, there's a truck sitting over the yard. I got to leave. All right, I'll see. I'll, I'll, I'll read my Bible later, and I pray. I never do it. And it could go on a couple of days. And all of a sudden, you pray, and all of a sudden, as soon as I start praying, I start quoting Scripture. They want you to get right back. You, your heart draws you like a magnet to get into Scripture. That's what prayer does. And it's, and it's, the, same, and it's the same way in reverse. You start reading Scripture. What's the first thing you want to do? You want to pray. You want to ask the Lord to open your heart up, to show you something you've never learned before. And I promise you, it's coming. You do that, you will see things. You will see things in your life and things that are pounding and pounding on your brain that are bothering you that the Lord will give you some kind of clarity. I've never seen that fail. Somehow, some way, through prayer, Bible reading, and you marry them together, something wonderful is going to happen. And then there's the third means of grace is worship. This is where it all comes together on Sunday morning. You have Bible reading. You have prayer. You have endless quoting of scripture. Then you have what we were just talking about with David. You have singing. And what this does is it gets you kick-started for the week. And you look for these opportunities. And this is what David's talking about. He said, I will keep thy statutes. I cried unto thee. Save me and I'll keep thy testimonies. As David was growing older, older nothing in the world, nothing in the world meant more to him than the salvation of the Lord. In Psalm 50, verse 23, we read, Whoso offereth Praise glorifieth me, glorifieth me, and to him that ordereth his conversation aright will I show the salvation of God. So we move forward. He says, my, my voice shall hear in the morning, O Lord. I will direct my prayer unto thee. I will look up. But he says in verse 147, I prevented the dawn. But if you go back to Psalm 30, I think it's verse 5, he said there was, there was tears, there, were, there was weeping at night, but what was there in the morning? Yes. There was joy in the morning. What, I write Pastor Evans a lot. We, we write back and forth, and he doesn't say much. I, don't try, I try not to say too much because he's, he's a busy guy, but I write him and try to encourage him. He always ends, instead of saying thank you or, or you just your regular salutations or a benediction, he always says, there will be joy in the morning, comma, Pastor Evans. He always says that, there will be joy in the morning. I remember one of uh, Pastor Olson's way he writes, he always says, fellow soldier. I love that, fellow soldier. And so, joy in the morning. And that's what we're looking for. And that's why one of the, that's a, I think that's a really good lesson about marriage, is never let the sun go down with your anger. And always look for that joy in the morning, and the Lord will bring it. He says, My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer. How many times did David say that he worshipped the Lord daily? Anybody remember? Yep. Perfect. Seven times. David prevented the dawning. His eyes prevented the night watches. In the early years of King David, what was a major turning point from the humble valiant days of defeating Goliath to almost pursuing Nabal with 400 men, fleeing from Saul and acting like a madman, then taking Saul's spear, then running off disobediently to Gath with Samuel, and Samuel's pastor had died. This caused... This, this is caused in, in an assessment. There were many sleepless nights in David's life. He saw many die. Can you imagine the sleepless nights when Jonathan died? You don't even hear. I mean, it's very kind of sad in a way, but you don't even hear 
you don't, you don't even hear the kind of anguish that he had with all the wives that he had, what happened to them, as you do with what happened with Jonathan. He was a re- those two were real close Christian friends, and they really loved each other. David prevented the dawning. He was, succe- he was successful because he rose up early in the morning. His eyes prevented the night watches. He stayed up and he prayed with his whole heart and he cried through his prayers, and that's what I think he's talking about. He was praying the whole night when he was bothered and he was crying through the night. You know, today you have social media and you have so many distractions, but the greatest thing at night is when you're really feeling bad and you can't sleep at all, pray. Don't go to the television. Don't go to the, don't, don't go to the social media stuff and all that. Just go do with David the very same thing and have that connection. Just sit there and pray and all. And I, it, it's a real blessing. David meditates upon God's word. We read this here. We go down here to verse 148. Mine eyes prevent the night watches that I might meditate in thy word. The word meditate, really. That, 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 the word meditate actually has one of the most romantic love stories you'll ever read in all of Scripture and in all of time. And that's when, what was Isaac doing when he was waiting for his, he, well, he didn't even know. Remember, Abraham has sent his servant to go fetch him a wife, right? And, he, and, and basically the Lord said, whoever the woman that comes up to give the water to the camels, she'll be the one. So the Lord knows. He knows everything. How did he know that? He'd have to be God to know that. In the middle of nowhere. And so this beautiful young woman comes up, Rebecca. She comes up. She's very kind. Winds up going, and what, what's Isaac doing in the fields of Lahiroi? Anybody remember? Yes, he's meditating. He's praying to the Lord, and when he finishes praying, he opens up this caravan, comes, and this woman comes up with a veil over her face, and this is his wife. He doesn't met her in his life. Pulls back the veil, and he immediately falls in love with her. And look what happens. And he loved her. You want to know how close that love was? Think about his father. Think about his grandfather and compare Isaac to them. What do you think it was that showed how much he loved Rebecca? Think about it. You have to think about it a little hard. There was a little difference between Isaac than there was Jacob and there was with Abraham. Isaac had one wife. No concubines. He had nothing on the side. He had her. She was his whole world. Whereas Abraham, oh, he had concubines. Jacob, you know, he was a rascal. But Isaac, Isaac I'm sorry that Jacob was, but that was his son, not his, not his father. But you had Isaac, you had, you had Abraham, but Jacob was a rascal. You had David was a rascal, Solomon was a rascal. They all, it was horrible what happened. And, you know, you don't hear how bad it was. You have to see the effects of their lives with all these concubines and how what a mess it was. But Isaac, he was with Rebekah solely. And that was an incredible love story. And he was meditating. Here David is meditating in the night watches. That says he's praying. Verse 148. He says, hear my voice according unto thy loving kindness. Okay, I wanted some time because we've got a couple more things to go through here. Anyway, we see here, here again, David meditates on God's word. And this is, this is a wonderful, wonderful blessing. It, it's, it, we see this as David's devotion. And it's a hope in God's word for encouragement. And it continues... He continues speaking to the Lord in prayer and he meditates on God's word. And we see how the more we are in God's word, the more it is in our thoughts and the more we know what to pray as we should. 
Can someone look up jo Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, please, and read that? Joshua 1, 8. About meditation. When we see that word here. It's very important to look at. Here we go. Boy, I think that's a pretty good trade-off. Sit down and read your Bible. It's free. You don't have to go stick a quarter into the jukebox or put ten, send ten dollars to one of these, one of these uh, social media sites in order to get the blood. It says, sit down and read it, and you'll have good success. That's a good promise. Why don't we do it? Why don't people do it? That's good success. I love Psalm one too. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Can someone look up Psalm chapter 63, verse 6? Boy, once again, see that? Thank you, Lisi, and thank you, Matt, for reading that. Listen. What he's, David's saying over and over again, we see this repeatedly, and I love repetition, is he's saying, boy, when I laid down at night and I started thinking about some of the things that happened to me, and it could have been after the death of someone he loved, it could have been a real bad sin or something like that, that's when it, it kind of settled in and David, he would, go, he would try to go to bed and he just couldn't do it. And he would pray in the night watches, in the middle of the night, he would pray and he would weep and the Lord spoke to him. Lisa. Right? Right? Amen. That's right. That's a massive lesson. I mean, one thing we didn't read is that Isaac was, was, was messing around with some of the pagan women trying to wait for that right one. He was saving himself. And he, like Lisa said, that we read he was meditating. And look at the, how the Lord blessed him. He blessed him with the wife of his dreams. That one person. You know, one person you meet. And look, look what he did. Look what happened there. Talk about the night watches. I'll never forget the day that the police came over to my house and told me my brother died. He was 38 years old, and I'll never forget that night I was praying. And you want to know what it did for me? I don't know why, but that night around 2 a.m. in the morning, the alarm in the house went off. It was, it was just frightening. It just went off, and it was the horns were going, it was going off, and I had been in the middle of prayer. My heart jumped, but it wasn't as bad because I was already awake, went down and reset it. It was just weird. 
because I had just, you know, I woke up. And I'm like, did I hear? Was this a dream? Did I hear that my brother just died? And I went down and I, and I turned the alarm off. Everything was fine. And it was just this real emptiness in my heart. And I just went up and prayed again. And I, I don't think I slept hardly at all that night. And it was a hard night. I'll never forget that. That's, you know, what someone, one, one man said. I mean, I think <laughs> we had had like in one of our youth, youth, youth things here, we had a video from one of our uh, um, youth rallies in the winter. And I remember there was a video and this guy was talking about whenever you take an emotion and you put it with a thought and it's really heavy on you, you never forget it. And, and these are the kind of things that David went through. I mean, he had gone through a lot of death in his life. It was hard. And the Lord had him praying. The Lord drew him to praying, and he did it, and he obeyed the Lord. But, you know, as we go from here, we see that meditation is so important. We see that in verse 149, David says, Hear my voice according unto thy loving kindness, O Lord, quicken me. What does he mean by quicken me? You know, that, that comes up in the King James Bible a lot. You won't see that in other version as much, but what does it mean by quicken me? Yes, excellent. Quicken me. He says, make me alive. Lift my spirits. Remind me of the life. What is my purpose-driven life? And I'm not quoting Rick Warren. I'm sorry. What is he saying? What can I do in my elder age? How can I serve the Lord? Well, I'm going to go into some interesting information here. This may sound kind of stupid, but you know, I'm sorry. I do the best I can. David is clarifying what Scripture is. Okay? Think about that. And the reason I love reading it in the King James Bible in the Old Testament is because you're getting the real words. You're getting, once again, he's talking about God's word being my statutes and I will follow them. He says they're my precepts, they're my judgments, they're my testimonies, they're my, they're my law. That is the standard by which I live with. You know, isn't it amazing how these reverent words and things change over time and how meanings change and all of a sudden people become very insensitive to the things that biblical standards say to stay away from and they're bad? Isn't it amazing? Look at, look at some of these words. I'm going to start on a secular level. Remember prisons. They used to call prisons prisons. What do they call them now? Anybody? You don't go to prison anymore. What do they call them? Yes, you got it. Rehabilitation centers of detention. You go into D block and you're there for a life sentence for murdering and you're just going to detention. No, you got a big problem there. You got a real problem. You know, prisons, they used to be called the clink. They used to be called jails. Now they're called rehabilitation centers. And believe you me, don't think that they don't get government funding and all kind of money because my brother was in and out of jail, I don't know how many times, and they gave him free pack cards, they gave him credit cards, they had everything he needed. They were even going to give him free college. Anyway, Lisa, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Right. No, they, it's a detention center, Matthew. He wants to expunge the records. Right, right, and that's, that, that, that's a whole other subject. You ought to hear the, 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 the letter that Mike Rowe, you know Mike Rowe? You know Mike Rowe. I love Mike Rowe. He's awesome. You ought to hear what he just came out with. Two-thirds of the kids in college today don't want to go anymore. They want to start working with their hands, he said. They're sick and tired of the fees and they're not learning anything. 
It was an astounding number he came out with yesterday. He was really blasting a lot of these Ivy League colleges for charging 300000 And now, when you get out of an Ivy League college, you, you, they, they require you to have a 3.8 GPA, and most of them can't even come close to that. So they get in somehow through mommy or daddy or some kind of, they got some kind of ties with Senate or something, and they go in, 300000 bucks, and they're out of college. They got this debt, and they can't do anything. He says a lot of them now, a lot of the kids themselves, now they're, start, they're tired of this and they want to do something. I think it's about time. Prisons, how about dumps? I remember my grandfather, you say, hey, Tim, let's get down to the dump. Well, I always loved the dump. I love you find all kind of cool things there. Remember, leave it to Beaver. Yeah. Dumps, what are they called now? Yes. Yeah, they even had to put lipstick on that. It's a dump. It's a dump. Oh, no, it's now a place of refuse, not refuge. <laughs> Not Psalm 46, it's a place of refuse. It, it, now, it's a landfill. Yes, yeah, you gotta, gotta keep it looking smelling good. You ought to drive in that place, it doesn't smell good. What are drug pushers now? Drug pushers, junkies. You know what they are now? Sorry if you have one in your family, I did, so I can very confidently say that. They're now called addict victims, you know. Drugs themselves, they're called medications on every level. They're not drugs anymore, they're medications. Oh, this is a real, this is a sad one. Abortion is now family planning or reproductive health care. Murdering a baby is now reproductive health care. And you have a whole aisle in the grocery stores that says family planning. Everything to murder a baby on the shelf. That's what they ought to put on there. Here's what you need to murder your baby. Maybe people wouldn't do it as much and call it what it is and stop putting lipstick on it. Matt. Yeah, well, that's the truth. Sodomy is now transitioning. Love is now diversity. Male and female is now gender bias. Pedophiles. This is a, yeah, it's a new one for pedophiles. They've, got, they've really put lipstick and eyeliner on this one. They're now child offenders. Pedophiles are child They don't like the word pedophile. I remember using that word down at, uh, down at the General Assembly when they were putting that uh, gay bill in for marriage equality. And I was saying that, oh, don't use that word, not pedophile. Homosexuals are not pedophiles. They're not. Oh, by nature they are. Oh, no, they're not. Oh, this one won for a while. They're pedophiles. And they need to be treated from the Old Testament like they treated pedophiles. They need to stone them. And they need to put it on the middle, on the halftime for the Super Bowl. Take them all the pedophiles on the halftime of the Super Bowl and stone them out in the streets. You're going to stop seeing kids being taken and trafficked. And you want to know the highest trafficking time of pedophiles? It's during the Super Bowl because the police are all focused on the Super Bowl and all the traffic. And that's one of the highest. Just read about it. You'll see the percentages. That's secular. Oh, here, where do we get to religious? Religion. And you, you, can, you can answer some of these. What's heaven now called? Yes, funerals. It's a better place. It's up there in the sky. Or... It's just real. Now we all have to be reminded after 6,000 years of Scripture and knowing that God is there, heaven is real, God is real. Now we have to go all the way back and start over again and have movies that say God is real. I'm waiting for hell is real. They haven't hit that one yet. I'm waiting for hell is real. What is God? What is God? What do they call him? Yes, he got it. The big man or the man upstairs. That's, how he's be that's what he's become. What are angels? Cupids with bows and arrows, apparitions. They're now called childminders. 
Jesus, this is, this is the one that really always got me. This goes all the way back to his, to his uh, appearance here on this earth. Wonderful ministry. He's not God. You know what he is? You can go to the Latin. He's prophet par mixtum. That is one of the most lipsticked up, powdered up, taking lime and putting over a horrible smell to just say that Jesus was a prophet par mixtum. You know what that meant? He was a prophet amongst equals. He was no different than any other prophet. He was no different. He was no better than them. He was not God. And that's what the problem is. And basically, he's called a good teacher. That's who Jesus is. Hell is a metaphor. It's a bad place. And now it just came out that all hell is is a rehabilitation center, just like the prison. And people go there for a short time, and then they come out. And they might go to heaven, or they might come back here one day, or they might just sleep for a while, but hell is just a rehabilitation center. Or like even sadly with evangelicals, it's a time of depression. Oh, I can promise you when you're standing in the middle of a heated flame, you're going to be depressed. I can promise when you have nothing to grab onto and you're falling and you're begging Abraham for, a, for, a, for one little drop of water and Abraham says, I'm sorry, there's a gulf between us. I'm sorry, La the, man, the, the man that you treated Lazarus horrible Dives, and that's what the guy's name was. His real name was Dives in the Latin because it meant very rich man. Basically, I can't do anything for you or your kids. Lisey. Yes, that's a great point. He never even mentioned God. When he was talking to Abraham, Abraham, go fetch Lazarus. And that's the, you know, he, I'll let him eat my trash. Let, why, don't you, why don't you send him a bottle of water and, and let him feed me or something? Abraham says, I can't do that. And he goes, well, at least tell my, tell my family. He goes, if they're not going to read the writings of Moses, and basically he was saying they're never going to anyway because you didn't teach them, whatever. They're not, I'm not going to do anything. And that, that is what, that's what hell is all about. Hell is real. It's not a metaphor. And then there's the Bible. And this is what gets us to, into our next section for the last few minutes here. we got a couple minutes. What do people call the Bible today? Perfect. That's the first good book. That's my first one. They call it an autobiography. They call it the Koran. People call the Bible a Koran. They do. They say that's the holy inspired word of God for the Muslims. The very same people that like to kill Christians... They call the Koran is supposed to be scripture. It's called a historical reference. It's called the Vulgate. I mean, there, there's endless names that the Bible, that, that's been twisted into. Everything just about but God's word. And that's what we get today. And that's why, can you see why people have become very insensitive to the standards that God's given us where we need to hold on to them and go back to them. You know, I have so many people, I, I mean, you know, we, you know, we give out tracts, we have the track ministry, or, we, or you go out into the work world and you start getting into talks about religion, and people start talking about what God is and what the standards are, and you start telling them from Scripture and you start quoting Scripture, and the thing is, is it makes sense. It makes sense when, we, when, when people talk, you know, I have guys talking about, hey, look at that girl over there, boy, she's pretty hot. You know, I say to them, well, Jesus said, I say unto you, you even look upon a woman with lust. You've already committed adultery in your heart. No, I haven't. I'm just looking. Oh, no, you have it. The Lord says, you're not only looking, but you're touching it with your brain. 
And when you're doing that, you're violating a dominion mandate God's given that, you know, and I always say, what if that was your daughter? Do you want me to look at her if she's your daughter? I mean, you get this kind of stuff in the construction world, stuff like that. I mean, these mandates that God gives are extremely profound. They're, they, they hit the nail right on the head, and they cannot, be, they cannot be abrogated, and they cannot be changed. They can't. Like this morning I was listening, we were, all, we were listening to a message on the way over from Dr. James Boyce. He's reading the NIV Bible, and he's talking about the Beatitudes. And the NIV Bible, I think it was NIV or whatever, says, you know how Christ said, blessed, blessed are the meek? It says in that Bible, happy are the meek. That's not true. That's not the same meaning. Blessed is a whole different perspective. It's a whole different teaching on being happy. It's blessed. I don't want to be happy on my own. I want to be blessed by God. And that's been changed. It's another word play. Well, this brings us to the last part. We're going to read some scriptures, then we'll finish out. We've got, well, actually, we're just about done. What do the scriptures principally teach? We learned it this morning. We learned the names of Scripture over the last several weeks. But this is from the Confession of Faith. And at question five, this, what do the Scriptures principally teach? And can I ask someone right now, uh, I, want, I'd like, I need three different people. One to look up Romans 16, verse 25 to 27. One to read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 11. And we'll stop, there's many, many, many more. We'll stop with Hebrews 4.12. The first person, Romans 16.25 to 27. Just give me a minute and we'll go to that. The second person, 2 Corinthians 3, verses 6 through 11. And the third reader, Hebrews 4.12. Okay? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Man is guilty before God. We are not to be boasting. We are to be listening to the law, and it's the law we are to have faith. So the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of him. So who has Romans 16, 25 to 27? And all of this, this everlasting God and these commandments, they're made manifest by what? The scriptures. Thank you, Charlie. By the word of God. They're being made manifest by scripture. That is by the, the sovereign inspiration of the Bible only. Not these other versions. Not these self-help books, but by the scriptures alone. Who has 2 Corinthians 3, verses 6 through 11?
Perfect. Thank you, Teresa. And look at the opening. You speak about canonization of Scripture. And today, one of the biggest assaults against the inerrancy of Scripture is even the own apostles and the writers of the New Testament did not know that they were writing Scripture. That is an assault. And that is a lie. You hear that? You know exactly what to do. You can go to this verse here. Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. This is through Scripture Paul's talking about. He's saying the New Testament is given. This New Testament, it's a revelation of the Old Testament. And he knew over and over again how Paul said many times, and he opened up these chapters, he says, and I, the apostle of Jesus Christ, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's how he knew he was writing Scripture. You have that and you understand that. You will be able to defend and you will, you will have apologetics that are spot on five star if you can prove that they were inspired to these men. That's very, very important. And the last one, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Let me tell you something. If you, this book is a discerner of your intents and in your heart, you better get into it and dig. Dig hard. This, 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 this Holy Scripture has the power to discern what's on our hearts and in our heads. What's another teaching today? Oh, only God can only see the external. You're going to see that word here a lot. Only the Lord can, can see the external in our lives. Oh, no, He can't. If you're thinking about how important that keeping in step with the Holy Spirit is, you will know that God knows your thoughts before they hit your head, why they hit your head, all the way through what you're thinking and what they carry out. He knows every last jot and tittle in your brain. And if He is a discerner of the intents of your hearts and your thoughts, you better believe that this book has power, something that you can't even begin to process and comprehend. And I tell you that you can't because David said he couldn't. He said, I cannot process, I cannot process, I cannot even begin to, to understand how the ways of God are so excellent. But he says, I'm going to have faith to trust in the, what I do know and what the Lord's given me. And that's what we're reading here this morning, how he, David calls the Word of God his statutes, his precepts, his testimonies, his judgments, and he says that they are sure, and he says that they're true. And we'll have to finish here. I'll ask Matthew, could you close us this morning? Thank you.